Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back, listeners. I'm pretty sure it's episode 314 of the Paleo View. That's what it says in my notes. Sarah, we've been doing this a long (laughs) time. Yeah. Isn't it great? And this week, we're covering a topic I don't think we've ever covered before. How can we do that? How can we do this for six years and still find new stuff to talk about? You know what's amazing, actually, is that it's not even that this is a new topic for us. It's that I have a whole collection. We've been getting some amazing questions from listeners. And uh, I have an entire collection of like amazing questions to drive um, podcast topics that are all things that we haven't covered. Like, I just think that um, there's something about our listeners. They are so thoughtful and engaged and they just ask such good questions. And I do have to admit that Brianna's question today, I have been sitting on for a little while. I feel kind of bad about it. Did <laughs> but she it not compliment the- us? Is that why? No, she starts with your show is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> she gave excellent compliments in the question. It's just, uh, you know, as, as you'll see when I get to the question, I get, nervous when we address questions that have to do with children's health, because I really, really, really don't want to be wrong. Uh, I just, I mean, I really don't want to be wrong anytime. Like I, that's one of the things I really don't like is being wrong. That's why I'm so um, good at saying, I don't know. Cause I'd rather say, I don't know than than pretend like I know and then be wrong. Like if I don't know the answer to something that's, that's, I say I don't know. Um, But anytime we get a question that's related to pediatric health, it just feels like the stakes are a little bit higher for me. And so I really end up having to wait until I have a good amount of time to do the research so that I feel comfortable diving into those topics in more detail. And that's why Brianna's question had to wait till today. Well, I'm excited. Um, I I know my thoughts and opinions on this topic and – It'll be interesting to see if your six pages worth of notes (laughs) validate my very anecdotal Google search level opinion on the topic. Um, So I think we're just going to jump into the questions. I mean, you ready? Let's do it. So Brianna writes, Stacey and Sarah, your show is amazing, and I appreciate the education you provide for listeners on a weekly basis. P.S. You- I love that you found a way to say that twice. I'm like, oh, I liked I mean, it the I first time, read, too. I have to read the whole question now. It was before it was just summarizing. Okay. I won't interrupt you again. Go ahead. <laughs> Through your content and books, I am working on transitioning to paleo and I'm working with my family. I have a couple of questions. 
My daughter, who's 10, has significant challenges falling asleep and has since she was one. I had to stop napping her at that age or she would be up until 12 at night. She still has a lot of problems falling asleep. Despite reducing screen time, I'm working on eliminating two hours before bed. She sleeps in a cool, dark room, etc. The problem is her brain doesn't shut off. Last year, I introduced melatonin to her and it made a world of difference. She is now getting eight plus hours of sleep a night. I've heard it referenced on your show and I believe by Stacy that she has used it or maybe a family member. I have also listened to the Model Health Show and he reports there that taking melatonin is very harmful and will actually stop you from making your own. Can you provide any insight on this? I don't want to harm my daughter, but I like her much better when she gets ample sleep. As a mother, I resonate so much with that last sentence. (laughs) We hear you, girl. And actually, like before we get into the more more technical aspect of Brianna's question, I just want to say how much her experience echoes my own experience with my oldest Adele. So she was also a kid who, um, you know, didn't didn't sleep. Her she really doesn't shut off her brain. Like it's the exact same reasons. Um, You know, when she was younger, it was related to sensory processing disorder, which I didn't, you know, fully understand until she was um, like almost five. She she got sort of a belated diagnosis. and we did the same thing. Like we, we discontinued naps. We went from three to two really early and from two to one really early. And she stopped napping at, I think it was like 20 months old altogether, just because it would improve her nighttime sleep. And like Brianna, I'm going to say it right off the bat, uh, on our pediatrician's recommendation, we started her on melatonin when she was uh, I don't actually remember fairly young, uh, before paleo. Um, and it did make a huge difference to her sleep. Uh, and I have had to, um, you know, I've, I've certainly done my own research into this area in terms of making decisions for my child. Uh, but then I completely upped the ante to make, uh, hopefully, or to give Brianna, hopefully good, some good information to make decisions for hers. Well, since she mentioned that I have talked about it on the show before, I just want to clarify my own personal experience, which is that I too have given Cole, our oldest, who has similar um, experience from his ADD. It's very common with um, anyone who has ADD or ADHD to have this experience of a difficult time falling asleep. Wesley, who has ADD as well, also has a hard time falling asleep. Um And so we did some melatonin with Cole at certain points. And when I travel, I travel with melatonin. Um, But my own personal experience is that if something is happening where every single day it's needed, I would rather find the root cause of where the sleep problem is and address that. And in the meantime, take melatonin. And I know we're going to get into the science of all of it, but it is a hormone in your body. And so anything that you're introducing from that perspective, even the scientific literature, as much as Sarah's going to share with you, we're constantly finding new things about. And for me, I would rather try to find as much as I can a solution rather than um, a medical intervention, right? And sometimes you need both. And so that decision 
is yours to make for sure. And I think Sarah and I can probably talk about some of the other recommendations that we each have for helping that sleep problem, especially in our children, because you and I have had this conversation and I know where we both fall on different things that we do to help our kids um, go to sleep easily. And um, maybe that might help to augment some of the other medical solutions that you're using in the meantime. Yeah, I really want to try to answer this question from a a variety of different angles. So both talking about um, supplemental melatonin, talking about uh, what might be causing a deficiency in melatonin, how you can improve your melatonin production, and then also things that are not related to melatonin that can help sleep. So let's start with just like what melatonin actually is, since we've never really thoroughly covered this topic on the show. Melatonin, as you mentioned, Stacey, is a hormone. It is uh, typically referred to as the sleep hormone, and that's because it is um, produced in the pineal gland in our our brains and released uh, typically a couple of hours before we go to bed. And it helps prepare our bodies for sleep. So it helps slow our metabolism. It helps drop our body temperature. It makes us feel sleepy and more relaxed. And uh, it peaks sort of in the middle of the night. So it is a key driver of our deepest sleep. So we have our deepest sleep when melatonin is at its highest. And then it typically, uh, it's it's removed from um, our circulation and it hits its lowest levels typically shortly before you know dawn, like right before we wake up. So it is a, a really, really important regulator of sleep. It is also an incredibly important circadian rhythm hormone. So the circadian rhythm is how our body knows whether or not it's day or night. So basically all forms of life on earth have biological processes that cycle on a 24-hour clock. So uh, it just has to do with evolving on Earth uh, and the fact that Earth spins once every 24 hours. And we have a, a master clock in our brain in an area in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus, which is a, a fun thing to say. And uh, that master clock syncs with every single cell in our body through the regulation of two key circadian rhythm hormones, melatonin and cortisol. And so basically, when melatonin is at its highest, cortisol is at its lowest. And when melatonin is at its lowest, cortisol is at its highest. They actually have a very antagonistic relationship. And that ebb and flow of cortisol and melatonin helps set the circadian clocks in every single cell in our body, which then regulates pretty much every system. And it really has to do with things like regulating Uh, energy and motivation during the day, um, digestion during the day, because that's when you're going to eat, repair and restoration at night, like those really like big strokes, important uh, cyclic events, things that happen when you're awake versus things that happen when you're asleep. Those are regulated by our circadian rhythms. And melatonin is really, really key for that. But melatonin is not just our sleep hormone or our circadian rhythm hormone. It's really considered a super hormone. And we've sort of talked about uh, insulin as a super hormone relatively recently on the show. Melatonin is another one. It is a true multitasker. It is not only produced in the pineal gland. There are 
tons of other tissues in the body that produce melatonin uh, and some have a lot more melatonin in them. So for example, the gut houses about 400 times more melatonin than the pineal gland. And it has been linked now to uh, a lot of really amazing health effects. So first and foremost, it is an incredibly powerful antioxidant. So generally, if you have a compound that can work really, really well as an antioxidant, it is going to benefit a lot of different systems in the human body. And that's what we see with melatonin. So as you would expect, when you hear the word antioxidant, you almost always hear the word anti-inflammatory, and melatonin is. Beyond being just purely anti-inflammatory, it's actually immunomodulatory, so it can actually help balance the immune system and balance it in a way that is helpful in cancer and balance in a way that's helpful in autoimmune disease. So that is really amazing. So it actually balances uh, activity and levels of effector T cells versus regulatory T cells. And um, just as a sort of a quick reminder, in autoimmune disease, regulatory T cells are suppressed and effector T cells are overactive and the effector cells are what are attacking whatever tissue is being attacked, right? If you have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, attacking your thyroid gland. Uh, and in cancer... Um, the regulatory cells are overactive and the effector cells are suppressed. So the cells whose job it is to patrol the body for cells that are becoming cancerous and kill them before they become tumors aren't doing their job. So you've got this um, imbalance in the immune system between cancer and autoimmune disease that is almost the opposite. I mean, the, the immune system does have a lot of other cell types that are, are doing different things in cancer and autoimmune disease. So it's it's not quite like it's one end versus the other of a seesaw, um, but there is a lot of um, analogy in terms of how the immune system is breaking down between autoimmune disease and cancer. In terms of the cancer effects, though, with melatonin, we see other really interesting things. So it's anti-proliferative. So that means it stops cells from dividing, uh, which is really important for cancer, cancer growth. There's a variety of studies showing that melatonin is what's called oncostatic, which means that it halts the growth of tumors. So those are things that you would, you would sort of expect those two properties to go together. But it also appears to prevent cancer. So it's anti-carcinogenic. So it appears to lower our risk of cancer. Um, as an antioxidant, it seems to have a variety of anti-aging effects, potentially even impacting telomere length, which is crazy town interesting. It uh, is what's called endocrine modulatory, which means it influences the levels and activities of a whole pile of other hormones. Uh, cortisol, which I already mentioned, uh, is sort of antagonistic with melatonin. They sort of balance each other, but also insulin. So melatonin feeds feeds into the insulin system pretty um, pretty directly. It also impacts thyroid hormone um, pretty directly and sex hormones pretty directly. So it it having um, you know normal levels of melatonin helps to regulate all of those systems. There's a bunch of research showing that it's an anti-obesogen, which means that it promotes uh, weight loss and better body composition, which is really fascinating. And it does this partly through uh, its actions on uh, insulin by um, improving uh, insulin sensitivity during the day. It can help protect liver and kidneys from damage. 
it has uh, some cardioprotective effects. So it's antihypertensive, which means it helps to uh, regulate blood pressure. So it, you know, avoid high blood pressure, hypertension. Um, but it also helps to regulate both fat metabolism and glucose metabolism, which is really important in uh, cardiovascular health. And there's research showing that it can prevent uh, against what's called ischemia and reperfusion injury. So that's analogous to what would happen during uh, a heart attack that's caused by a myocardial infarction. So where you have a blocked blood vessel to the heart and that uh, blocks uh, blood flow to a, a part of the heart muscle. Um, and then that's, you know, say you do it, get an angioplasty and it's released. The heart muscle can still be damaged. So melatonin can actually protect those tissues against that type of damage. It has some neuroprotective effects and actually been shown to be potentially protective against traumatic brain injury. It has some analgesic effects, which means it can help reduce pain sensation. Uh, it supports thyroid health in general. It's a really important antioxidant in the thyroid. The thyroid actually makes its own melatonin, which is just super cool. And it helps to regulate peristalsis in the gut. So that is the coordinated movement of the muscle cells to help push the gut contents through the digestive tract. So that is a lot of rules, and I probably missed something, which is that's just how cool melatonin is. And I think that it has uh, – because it has all of these rules, there's a huge amount of science not just looking at melatonin for helping with sleep disorders, right? So we're, we're going to talk a lot about the sleep disorder science, uh, but I kind of wanted to give some examples of like – where melatonin has actually been shown to be potentially beneficial. Um, so, for example, in all of its its immune health roles, uh, there's some a little bit of contradictory science when it comes to to say autoimmune disease. So, for example, in rheumatoid arthritis, some markers of inflammation went up, some went down. There's generally no change in symptoms. So it was sort of considered to be like a, you know, wah, wah. It wasn't, it wasn't amazing. But there's been some interesting studies in ulcerative colitis uh, showing that just five milligrams of melatonin a day can actually halt the progression. So they have uh, these patients who are progressively getting worse and worse and worse they give them melatonin and their diseases stabilize. So it's, you know, it's not a cure, right? It's not like saying it, it makes their ulcerative colitis better, but it stabilizes compared to the people who don't get melatonin and their disease continue to progress. So melatonin has some, some really, really interesting roles in the body. And that is one of the reasons why it has been studied so aggressively. But I think that what I'd really like to do is focus a little bit on the the sleep uh, studies in particular, because it used to be that melatonin was really only uh, considered effective for circadian rhythm mismatch situations. So uh, people who are blind and they don't get the um, light dark cycle, like they don't they don't get that signal to their brain to set their circadian clock. Jet lag and shift work are are, are the the, the most common examples of circadian rhythm mismatch situations. And it used to be that melatonin was thought to only be effective in those, but there's actually been a lot of data done in the last few years, uh, a lot of studies that have shown that melatonin um, really does improve sleep quality. And uh, there's actually been a lot of studies showing um, that 
with higher doses of, of melatonin that you can get not just improvements to sleep, but you can get these other tangential benefits like weight loss, which is I mean, I, I always just think these things are kind of cool if you think about all of the different systems it impacts. Um, so there were a few, I, I highlighted a few studies that I thought were interesting. Um, there's been quite a few studies in postmenopausal women with uh, melatonin because sleep disturbances are such a, a common consequence of menopause. And I was also trying to get a sense of the doses that are used in these studies. If you look at studies, the doses typically range from about 03 uh, milligrams all the way up to 10 milligrams is sort of the, the range for these studies. And uh, most, I would say most of them that I see are at five. Five milligrams seems to be like the modal dose. Uh, but I, I'm going to talk about that in more detail. So um, in one study with postmenopausal women, they were followed for 26 weeks, which is a very long period of time. They were uh, put on a calorie reduced diet. So they're put on a 1500 calorie a day diet, um, sort of standard, you know, it was wholeish foods, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like paleo or anything like that. And five milligrams of melatonin daily. And the melatonin actually aided their weight loss. So compared to the controls who didn't have the melatonin, but were still put on the calorie reduced diet, uh, the people who had melatonin lost more weight, and they also had improvement in sleep quality. Um, there was another study. This, these people, I think this is crazy. They were given three milligrams of melatonin in the morning and five in the evening and followed for a whole year. And they actually looked at all of the different symptoms that go along with, with menopause. So all of the things that are hugely annoying that nobody likes about menopause, and they have a, a score that they look at that's sort of like a composite score of all of those symptoms and showed that uh, the women who took the melatonin just generally had improvement in symptoms of menopause as well as losing weight over 12 months. Um, and I think it's, it's some interesting examples of where mel melatonin is not just used to improve sleep, but it's used at this therapeutic level. So what's really interesting is there's actually this tremendous collection of studies that have looked at melatonin therapeutically and shown um, that it can stop cancer growth. Um, you know, the RA data is maybe not super exciting, but the ulcerative colitis data is exciting. And there's a lot of animal studies showing that you know, where they can actually really get into details in terms of what the immune system is doing and showing that the immune system is balanced. So whatever is uh, low will come up and whatever is too high will come down with melatonin supplementation. Um, now, one of the things they're doing in animal studies is they're giving um, extremely high doses. And so it's really, really hard sometimes to translate what that would mean in a human. I think that mostly what that data shows is that normal melatonin levels have some really important roles in human health. And that when your melatonin 
is low, that that could potentially be a contributor to increased disease risk. So if you think of anything that is impacting immune health, anything that is going to be driving inflammation or dysfunction of the immune system, and low melatonin would be one of those things, it's going to increase risk of chronic disease. But then if you look at all of the other effects of, of melatonin, you know, it's, it's roles in, you know, things like controlling blood pressure and thyroid health and insulin sensitivity, you really quickly see that if melatonin isn't regulated well, if you're not making enough of it, that sleep is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the negative health impact that could be occurring. And so I started pulling together a list of like what situations actually are known to be linked to low melatonin levels. So you can actually have your melatonin levels measured and you can have it measured during different times of the day and actually see what it's doing and how much you're producing. So typically you should be making, you should have about 10 times more at its highest in your system than when it's at its lowest. But there's a, a variety of situations that are linked to poor melatonin production. So one of them is genetic. So we know that there are people who have um, SNPs in the, actually not melatonin itself, but the receptors to melatonin. So uh, any hormone in order to do its action has to bind to a receptor. And then the receptor, um, when it binds to the receptor, that will stimulate some kind of signaling inside a cell to create some kind of an effect. So there are uh, SNPs in two different receptors to melatonin that have been linked to disease. And as I was sort of digging through this, the ones that I was able to find quickly that these um, uh, melatonin receptor SNPs are linked to is uh, Graves' disease, rheumatoid arthritis, PCOS. Uh, there's a lot of research linking SNPs to type 2 diabetes, but also gestational diabetes. Uh, psychosis, interestingly, uh, cancer metastases, and insomnia. So I, I think insomnia is probably the only thing on there that's maybe super uh, intuitive. If you if your melatonin can't bind with its receptor or there's not enough receptors, receptors aren't as active, then that's going to impact melatonin's ability to support sleep. But also through its effects on all of these other systems, you can see that you know disease risk is increasing. So um, that's a you know genetic. Um, you know, you could probably dive into the very, very specific, you know, 23andMe data, um, although I'm not sure all of the SNPs have been necessarily identified. Um, so that's one thing that could be happening for, for some people. But there's also some conditions in which melatonin secretion is known to be impaired. So, for example, in some forms of cancer, in particular breast cancer, endometrial cancer, and colorectal cancer, uh, patients who have those cancers are known to have lower melatonin levels. And it's it's not necessarily known, you know, chicken or the egg. We don't know what comes first. Um, but that's uh, one of the reasons why sleep disturbances can go along with the cancer diagnosis. It's not just the, the stress or um, the effects of the treatments. Uh, melatonin is known to be lower in people with hypothyroidism. So if your thyroid is not up to snuff, which actually is a lot of people, right? Sub, uh, subclinical hypothyroidism is extremely common, uh, impacting something like 20% of us. Um, so, uh, subclinical hypothyroidism 
which basically means your thyroid's not quite working up to snuff, but it's the the wheels haven't fallen off the cart enough for a doctor to give you a prescription for thyroid hormone replacement. Um, our normal melatonin production is lower in that case. It's lower in the context of insulin resistance, so that's impacting uh, pre-diabetics and diabetics. Uh, anybody with insulin resistance is going to be producing lower melatonin, and that might be why uh, sleep disturbances is really common in uh, ketogenic diets is is because of the link between melatonin and insulin. So it could potentially, I've never seen this measured, but um, it, it because of the link with insulin resistance, that might be what's driving uh, sleep disturbances potentially through lower melatonin production. And chronic stress, because I've mentioned that cortisol and melatonin are antagonistic. So chronic stress can also suppress melatonin production. And so those things give, there's a little bit in there that's like, I can't address that, but there's a little bit in there that is addressable. So, you know, getting a full thyroid panel done by a functional medicine specialist and looking at those details and supporting thyroid um, health if possible. Um, you know, making good choices for supporting insulin sensitivity. That's not just about eating a lot of vegetables and, and um, balanced meals, but that's also about being active and getting enough sleep. Haha, <laughs> that's a little bit, <laughs> I guess there's a little irony there. Um, and, uh, and actively managing stress, right? Those are all things that feed into insulin sensitivity. And then with chronic stress, right, that is, again, working to increase sleep, making sure sleep's a priority, and um, and working hard to increase our resilience to stress. So doing things like uh, you know, bonding, family time, connection, uh, meditation, nature time, activity, all of those things are really, really important for stress as well. It's interesting to me how much it ties into so many other things, which I was not aware of before, this idea of it being a super hormone and um our bodies are just so complex i'll just leave it at that like it's fascinating to me yeah it's true there's also uh, i mean i think that the crosstalk also makes it even more complicated and um and it's one of the reasons why um you know just taking uh, melatonin as you were sort of saying at the top of the show is not necessarily always going to be the solution because sometimes it's also about dress addressing the root cause like if the root cause is a you know genetic deficiency then you're never really going to have a, a better option than taking a supplement but if the the root cause of melatonin deficiency is something like stress um or you know diet and lifestyle factors that are contributing to insulin resistance, you know, those are things that are addressable. And then melatonin supplementation can be potentially a, um, a tool, right? Cause, because melatonin is also going to impact insulin sensitivity. There's crosstalk. So if you're insulin resistant, you're going to make not enough melatonin, but if you make not enough melatonin, that's going to drive <laughs> insulin resistance. So um, being able to, to address one is going to help, you know, contribute at least to fixing the other. It's not going to be enough by itself. Um, I should also mention that um, there's a few nutrients that are required for melatonin production. Zinc, uh, folate, which is vitamin B9 and vitamin B6 are all very important. And there's a little bit of preliminary evidence. It's not super, super strong, but that deficiency in any one of those three nutrients can potentially also reduce um, melatonin production. Um, and that's 
going to lead really cool into some of the um, sleep uh, supplementation studies. So let's let's talk a little bit about supplementing with melatonin, but then let's after that talk about how to support endogenous melatonin production because I think that's really what this is all about. I think um, you know supplementing definitely has a time and a place if you're looking at. A, you know, a genetic deficiency, you're not necessarily going to have a lot of choice. Um, but I think that uh, one of the things that I want to mention is because of these cofactors, B6, B9, and zinc, there have been a few recent studies that have started to look at cocktails for improving sleep. And they, they're looking at primary insomnia. So that is uh, insomnia that is not you know, secondary to another condition so that your insomnia is your primary health challenge. And what's been really interesting is these cocktails of melatonin with zinc or melatonin with magnesium or melatonin with magnesium and zinc seem to act synergistically together. So you actually get better improvements in uh, sleep quality in insomnia if you combine um, melatonin with magnesium and zinc. So that I think is really, really cool information to sort of think about nutrients that might be synergistic with melatonin. Um, I had a really interesting time digging into the, the doses that are used here. So, um, what I really wanted to know was how much melatonin actually improves sleep. So I think as I mentioned, um, there's studies that sort of go all the way from, you know, 0 0.1, 0 0.3 uh, milligrams up to about 10 milligrams. And I think what's most common if you were to go buy melatonin at the store, you would, you would probably see one milligram capsules or tablets, three milligram tablets, and five milligram tablets. Like those are the most commonly found doses. And certainly there's a ton of studies that have used those types of doses, but most of those studies aren't just looking at sleep. Sleep is not their primary outcome. They're looking at, for example, the studies in postmenopausal women were really, they were looking at sleep, but they were also looking at weight loss. Um, so there's, there's this whole collection of studies that are looking at melatonin therapeutically for different conditions, but it's not necessarily the right dose if we're really just looking to support sleep. So what's really interesting is the older studies. So if you go back to studies from the late 90s, before melatonin supplement industry was as huge as it is, uh, you could easily find studies showing that smaller doses were actually better. Um, there's one great study that look, that actually showed they compared 0.3 milligrams with 0.5 milligrams and showed that 0.3 milligrams improved sleep better. And then it compared to like one and three. So it, 0.3 milligrams is actually the optimal for improving sleep compared to a high dose. And this has to do with the heart of Brianna's question, which is what is physiologic and what happens when you supplement for a long period of time? So physiological doses, um, if you take uh, about half, half a milligram, so 0.5 milligrams, that is the high end of what the body normally produces. There's a lot of um, variation between individuals in terms of melatonin production, which means that the doses that are, 
you know, typically found, you know, in your supplement section at your grocery store or that even what a doctor might recommend to sleep, you know, a doctor might say, oh, just take three milligrams of melatonin. You're looking at increasing melatonin, you know, that's probably anywhere between 10 to 100 times your physiological levels. So that is uh, interesting when you're looking at potential therapeutic effects for disease. If you're looking to best support sleep, though, that's way overshooting the mark. And most things in the human body work best in this like happy medium range and too little causes problems, right? So we have all of the science showing that too little melatonin is linked with chronic disease, but too much can also potentially cause problems. And there is not a, you know, not much studies showing that like 10 milligrams of melatonin on a regular basis is going to cause problems. However, I'm not sure that it's necessarily the fix if the main issue is sleep quality. So from those studies, definitely looking at a lower dose, say 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams, that is, um, from what the science would say, going to support sleep quality better than a higher dose and be much more relevant to the body because it's going to be within the normal physiological range. And so then you're talking a lot more like analogous to the situation of a type 1 diabetic who's not producing enough insulin to uh, regulate their blood sugar. So a type 1 diabetic would take just the right amount of insulin because they're not making enough to keep their blood sugars in a happy medium range. Now, you're not necessarily choosing this dose based on a you know exact measurement the way a type 1 diabetic would be, but it's the same sort of idea that you're taking just enough to get your levels to what they should be if there's something holding them back. There's also studies showing that in uh, people who are completely blind, they have zero zero uh, ability to detect light or dark, that half a milligram is completely enough to entrench their circadian rhythms and regulate that entire system. So that's not just regulating melatonin, that's also regulating cortisol, and it's regulating all of their biological systems that are prioritized for different times of day. So um, I think that while certainly there's a whole bunch of studies, there's even studies in kids that, you know, the pediatric doses, if you look at studies in autistic spectrum disorder, for example, they're using between one and three milligrams in kids without any adverse events reported. So, you know, safety wise, three milligrams is, is, you know, it looks from the, from the very large body of scientific literature that's perfectly safe. It just may not be the best choice. It's much more physiologically relevant to keep the dose very, very low. Um, and I think that sort of naturally transitions into like, why not go high? Why not go for very long? And to directly answer Brianna's question, if I take melatonin uh, for a prolonged period of time, will my body stop making it? And that, right, that would be that vicious cycle. Um, that would be a really bad thing. And so, one of the things that we know happens, so for example, insulin resistance. We know that we can have this happen with other hormones as well. We can have cortisol resistance. We can have thyroid resistance where the body, when it's making a lot more than it needs, uh, receptors to that hormone will decrease in sensitivity or your body will make less receptors. So in insulin resistance, it's it's not actually insulin that's driving that as much as the insulin receptors. So there's so much insulin 
being produced chronically that all the cells in the body um, stop having as many insulin receptors in their cell membranes or those insulin receptors don't bind to insulin as easily. And that's actually what is driving insulin resistance. We know we can get the exact same thing with cortisol. Uh, we know we can get the exact same thing with thyroid hormone. And so even though we don't have studies showing that you could develop melatonin receptor resistance from high doses of melatonin, that is probably the most um, uh, sort of possible reaction to long-term high levels. So that wouldn't happen if you were keeping your levels physiologic and keeping the dose low. That's something that could potentially, we, we sort of have mechanisms to describe it. We don't necessarily have data confirming it happening in melaton with melatonin supplementation, but that is what would happen. So then what you would need is sort of ever bigger doses of melatonin to get the same effect because the body's not as responsive to it. But there have been some studies that have looked at whether or not long-term melatonin production or long-term melatonin supplementation actually impacts how much melatonin your body makes. Uh, and there's been a variety of them going up to about five milligrams of melatonin. And they've looked at how much your body makes of melatonin and shown that even long-term supplementation, this would be something that's recommended, for example, for shift workers, does not influence basal melatonin secretion. So that is a myth that is all over the internet. Don't take melatonin because your brain will stop making it. Um, and that turns out to not be true. Um, there was even a case study of a blind person who was supplemented with 50 milligrams of melatonin and showed that their basal melatonin secretion was not changed by that ridiculously huge dose of, of melatonin. Now, what we don't know from these studies is if melatonin receptor sensitivity is altered. That's what I was going to say. So it's, I mean, that makes sense to me that it doesn't change how much you have, but that you would become potentially desensitized to that volume of it. Yeah. So that is not something that is easy to measure. Like you, you really can't measure it without doing um, really invasive biopsies compared to just measuring melatonin where you would take a blood sample. So at this point, we don't have studies that have looked at uh, whether or not prolonged high-dose melatonin production can cause melatonin resistance. We do know it's, it doesn't tank your, your, your endogenous production, um, but there is that potential of impacting receptors, which is why if you combine that with the data showing that a lower dose actually helps improve sleep better than a higher dose, unless you are taking it therapeutically for one of the conditions that have been shown to benefit from higher doses, right? And typically it's like five milligrams of melatonin and you're doing this under a doctor's supervision, right? That's sort of a different situation. If you're really taking mel melatonin to improve sleep, Going with a lower dose looks like uh, something that is um, more probably going to be more more beneficial, more effective, but also you're sticking within physiological ranges, so you're not going to cause those long-term detrimental effects. And I, I really want to sort of emphasize for Brianna, like we've we've talked a lot about um, uh, what you know what might be causing lower than normal melatonin levels. Um, I think one of the things we're, we're going to transition into now is, is talking about uh, ways to naturally support your melatonin production um, so that hopefully you can 
not take melatonin supplementation. But if you're sticking in those physiological dose ranges, it you know the science shows that there's absolutely zero toxic effects. There's there's zero negative effects. And this has been really well studied for like 30 years. So I think that if there were negative effects, they would have come come out. Like there are, you know, these studies with high doses, like 10 milligrams, um, will typically show uh, you know, they'll they'll report adverse events and there have been those studies and they've typically been extremely low frequency. The most common is um, headache and feeling kind of like just foggy and tired. Um, every other adverse event, uh, event has been, you know, there's been like one person reporting it out of thousands. And they typically are, they're probably mostly related to actually like fillers in the melatonin supplementation or an allergy um, to, to something in the melatonin supplementation. So um, most of those, those reactions can be attributed not to melatonin itself. Um, and they're extremely, extremely, these are, these are the high dose studies and the adverse events are reported at extremely low frequency. So the, the studies really generally, you know, I think it's a legitimate conclusion from looking at all of the studies that I looked at uh, to show that especially low-dose melatonin supplementation is very safe. But I think it's really important to, as Stacy said off the top, do what you can to support natural melatonin production. And also there's other things that we can do to support sleep. So starting with just natural melatonin production, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but a couple of the biggest, most important things you can do, one is get bright light exposure during the day. So that means go outside at some point during the day. Usually the first half of the day is best. So if you're seeing sort of morning to afternoon sun, that's uh, the best for entrenching circadian rhythms. Um, But there's lots of hacks for this too. If you're Inside, um, you can get light therapy boxes now that are 10,000 lux, um, which is the, the a measurement of how bright they are, that for incredibly inexpensive. I even have a travel one that I keep in my suitcase that I think was 20 bucks off of Amazon. So a light therapy box is a great cheat for getting that bright light signal. And then it also becomes equally important to keep lights really, really dim and sort of red wavelengths in the evenings from for about two to three hours before going to bed. And again, one of the great sort of cheats for this is to wear amber tinted glasses um, Stacy has a favorite brand. I have a favorite brand. What's your favorite brand called again, Stacy? Felix Gray. And the reason that I like them so much is because they also prevent against glare and you can get them as reading glasses or not. And I use them during the daytime at the office and they just look like reading glasses. They don't have like an orange tint to them. So I like... My my favorite are Swannies, which do have an orange tint, but I actually feel like when lights dim, uh, compared to wearing something like uh, orange safety glasses, which is what I wore before, I got a pair of Swannies. Uh, if I put them on, I actually can see more clearly. So even though the light's still dim, um, it it will make if I look outside and you know the sun setting and the, the lights kind of dim and and if I don't have them on, it'll kind of, everything will look sort of blurry. If I put them on, everything will like crisp up. Um, so I actually feel like it's, it's not that it's, they're, they're not like corrective lenses. It has to do with the light 
that's getting through is actually easier for me to see in the evening, but, um, they're my favorite, but they do have the yellow lenses. So they do make me look a little bit like Bono, which is fine with me. Uh, and if Felix Gray, you're listening, Swannies, you're listening, you, you know, feel free to hook it up for our listeners. <laughs> completely sponsor a podcast and off, give our listeners an awesome coupon off the cuff, uh, unsponsored, but, no, we genuinely <laughs> like and use those brands. And like I said, I I would love a more affordable option. The Felix Grays aren't cheap. But no, neither are Swannies. They're perfect for in the office during the day, and I don't feel weird about wearing them. And I have found – I've been wearing them for about a year now in the office, and my eyes are definitely – more strained if I don't wear them. Like last week I brought them home on accident. My purse, I have one at home and one at work. I brought the ones from work at home on accident. I wore them home, not thinking and didn't have them in the office for two days. And I actually went home to get them and come back because my eyes were getting really strained by the computer. So, um, that was interesting for me to experience that because it made me realize how much we're really exposing ourselves to, not just from a hormone perspective, but there's also um, all kinds of other mechanic body stuff going on um, from all the, the blue light and the staring at a bright mm. screen and all that kind of stuff. So, so uh, light, dark cycle, huge. <laughs> there's some other, some other things that are really important. So uh, activity, just being active is really, really important for melatonin regulation. Um, now there's some interesting studies showing, you know, if you work out in a brightly lit gym right before bed, that's not, it might be the lights more than the activity in the evening. Um, studies really show that activity in the evening helps support melatonin production if it's habitual. Um, but activity in the evening, if it's not habitual, can actually delay when your melatonin turns on. So it, it can actually, um, basically it pushes your bedtime a little bit later, which depending on your schedule might not be desirable. Uh, but basically just being active in general is really, really supportive for, uh, melatonin production, circadian rhythms in general. There's some interesting studies showing that, uh, moderate fat intake and high fiber, and whole food carbohydrates help improve sleep quality. It's unknown whether that's driven through a melatonin effect specifically or whether that's something else impacting sleep quality. But there's some interesting studies showing that having uh, a good serving of carbohydrates with dinner um, and having dinner not right before bed, so having dinner four or five hours before bed, but having a balanced meal that has a starchy carb at it um, and high fiber and moderate fat intake throughout the day can really, really help improve sleep quality. And then as I mentioned, um, zinc, uh, vitamin B9, folate, and vitamin B6 are all really important cofactors for melatonin production. And um, you know, you might see um, B6 and B9 deficiency in people with MTHFR variants that are impacting MTHFR activity. So um, that's where those B vitamin deficiencies could be potentially impacting sleep quality, um, in which case, you know, that's a work with your doctor to optimize supplementation. Not everybody needs to be taking methylated folate or methylated B6 
if they have, um, depending on, on not just MTHFR, but some of the other methylation genes. So you definitely want to work with a practitioner on that. So if I can, just for a second, uh, specifically also the timing of when you take those kinds of vitamins is important. Mm -hmm. B6, if you take it in the evening, will give you a jolt of energy and further prolong your sleep problems. Um, Whereas earlier you mentioned, for example, magnesium um, as being uh, something that can help sleep yeah. with melatonin. And that would be something you would take in the evening. So be mindful and look into those supplements if you are going to move forward with them. And, and zinc wouldn't matter what time of day. Um, so magnesium, I would definitely recommend as an evening supplement because it it also helps relax muscles. It's very, um, it's actually, uh, uh, what's the opposite of neuroexcitatory? It calms your neurons. There's probably a technical word for that that I'm blanking on at the moment. Um, so it actually can help create a sense of calm, which is really conducive to sleeping as well. Um, zinc doesn't really have those types of effects. So you could take zinc at, at any time of day. And there's, it's probably mostly important just that you're getting enough zinc. Studies that have looked at um, you know, the average sort of American diet shows that 73% of Americans don't ever get the RDA of zinc. So we're probably mostly walking around zinc deficient. Um, and even on a paleo diet, if you're not eating very much shellfish, um, so like shellfish oysters are like the top food source of zinc, um, but shellfish in general is pretty good sources of zinc. And there are some nuts and seeds that are pretty good sources of zinc. If those aren't regular parts of your diet, you still might need to supplement or think about ways of incorporating more rich food sources in zinc. And that can dramatically improve sleep quality as well. One of the other things that I would mention specifically about these vitamins, and we've talked about it before on the show, is that a whole food supplement um, will help with synergistic absorption. And Mm -hmm. our favorite version of that is the vital proteins, liver pills, um, and I forget which part, was it the collagen podcast um, that was actually sponsored by Vital Proteins where we shared our link for a discount. So um, I just checked and that's still good. Vitalproteins.com slash the paleo view will get you a discount on our favorite liver pills. And we're not just saying that because of the link. We got the link for you because we know that they're (laughs) not cheap and we want you to get them at a discount. I take them every single day. Um, Mm -hmm. I have MTHFR and this is what I take instead of a methylated B6. Yeah. I I mean, I'm really glad you brought that up because it is an excellent source of absolutely everything that our bodies need to support melatonin production, including the next nutrient, uh, which is tryptophan. So uh, melatonin is actually a tryptophan-based molecule, which is one of the amino acids. Tryptophan is first converted into serotonin, which is then converted into melatonin. And organ meat and seafood have a lot more tryptophan while also having less of the other amino acids that compete to cross the blood-brain barrier with tryptophan. So um, it's not just about eating you know, <laughs> turkey and red wine and bananas, <laughs> but actually... Organ meat and seafood is a much better source of tryptophan that will be readily converted into serotonin and melatonin. Sweet. Did you see how I just like set you up and didn't even know it was coming? I mean, bada, 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 bada. Swing. <laughs> that was terribly embarrassing. Don't do that again. 
dear, I think it's late. Um, <laughs> probably not for our listeners. They're probably listening and they're like car ride in the morning commuting to work, but for us right now. Um, that's so, okay. They're used to our bad jokes. That's true. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so the, the last thing, cause I think we mentioned, uh, synergistic nutrients. Um, the last thing that's kind of an interesting one is there's actually a variety of, um, papers out there showing that tart cherry juice it's sort of a natural source of melatonin can also stimulate our endogenous melatonin secretion so that's a potentially like much more natural way to uh improve melatonin production if you're doing all of these other things and you feel like you still need a boost but you want to stay away from supplements um i i it's there's not really good guidance on how much to have i would try, you know, maybe an ounce and see how that goes. Um, so if but- I can make a completely off the cuff suggestion, specifically for Brianna and anybody else with kids, I can see that a smoothie with the liver pills, you get there, it's like desiccated freeze dried liver and you can open the pills and like sprinkle it on things if you want. And tart cherry juice could be a great option in the morning to then naturally increase. You would do you would do the tart cherry juice in the evening. Oh, all right. Well, yeah, yeah. That's more of a, that's more of an immediate thing. Um, so, and I'm, I'm fortunate. I don't. I think it's called tart cherry juice for a reason. <laughs> I have a suspicion it's fairly tart. Um, so, you know, good luck getting your kid to drink that. I, I know my kids are fairly good with the, you know, have a spoonful. It's, it's medicine, not, you know, like, well, could you also add maybe like frozen banana? Because if you're doing it before bed, then the banana would be like a slow release carb. Yeah. And it would also, bananas actually are, are fairly naturally high in tryptophan as well. Um, so that, that would probably be a really good option. Um, I'd, probably throw a little bit of magnesium in there too i was gonna say just don't don't put the liver pills in there because then it's gonna do the opposite of what you want in the evening uh well yeah and also remember that magnesium can also act as a laxative so um you definitely want to try magnesium for the first time on a not school night And you want to go slow with with dose and and work up a little bit to make sure that you're not causing GI symptoms. And if your child is not ready for supplementation of magnesium, adding Epsom salts to a bath before their bed is another great way to get that in. Yeah, we actually absorb. You can also do like magnesium um, moisturizers, magnesium oils. I feel like they, like a magnesium salts bath feels really good. I feel like a magnesium oil on your skin can on your skin can actually sting a little bit. So um, that may or may not work. What I do, um, like if I have, uh, my youngest daughter's a dancer. So if she ever gets a muscle cramp, I will mix a little bit of magnesium oil with like a tallow balm or something like that to sort of dilute it a little bit and then rub that into her muscle. And that works really well just as a, a side magnesium oil thing. Sorry. Was I supposed to say something? God, we are. I'm sorry, Matt. This has been a cluster. Um, I no, think you were I done. I think you're. I think of... I'm. I'm. I'm done. All my notes. So okay, I think that's we can okay. wrap it up. Um, so, uh, do you want to kind of go into some of the other things that can help? 
with sleep for kids that's not related to melatonin? Sure. Well, I think we've talked a lot about some of the things that I naturally work with my kids on in the evenings. Um, And some of it I was just doing and didn't realize was actually affecting their magnesium. So for example, carbohydrates in the evening. Um, You and I have talked about the benefits of that as adults, specifically with thyroid and other conditions. And so that was something that we incorporated as well that helps Cole and Wesley. Um, The other thing that I need to pay attention to with them is that magnesium bell curve window So if you are feeling tired yourself and you quote unquote push through for an hour or two, and then you get like another surge of energy, that as you know, we didn't really go into the details of that, but that's not a good thing for your hormones. And um, one of the things that as a parent is super important is to pay attention to your children's behavior when they indicate tiredness. So for example, Wesley starts to get really rambunctious and he'll run around the house and he'll jump on the furniture and he'll do all the things that are the opposite of looking tired because he's trying to keep his body awake. My Um, kids do that too. The tireder they are, the faster they get. Yeah. So as a parent, when I see that, I have to wind him down and get him ready for bed, no matter like what time it is. So yesterday he ended up going to bed like an hour earlier than usual, just because he'd been staying up later. And I think it just kind of caught up with him. And I saw him doing that zigzag thing all over the house. And I was like, okay, it's your bedtime tonight. <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now. Um, so pay attention to that with your children, because their bedtime could be something that is surprising to you. Sarah's kids go to bed much earlier than my kids. Um, and all of my kids go to bed at different times. Part of that is because, you know, their age difference. And as Sarah indicated, all of my kids go to three different schools. And so they get up at three different times. Um, but bedtime is just, I think, habitual habits is really important. The other things that I mentioned are helpful are a bath, a magnesium bath before bed. That's Wesley's favorite thing. Um, If he is having a hard time sleeping, we'll let him take a bath. And I feel better about that for him at his age. And I don't think he would really do well with a melatonin pill anyway. I don't think he's ever taken a pill. I'm sure that there are other ways to purchase melatonin, but that's just what we keep in the house for Matt and me and occasionally Cole. Cole is at the point now as a 13 year old boy. Can I just like back up the truck a minute on that? Um, that he can tell us when he's tired. Like he'll, if he's having a hard time falling asleep, maybe like once a month or something, he'll come in and say, I'm having a hard time falling asleep. Can I take a melatonin? And that is, that is the amount that I am personally comfortable with because I feel like that is you just giving your body a boost versus if there is a potential for, your body getting used to a certain level of melatonin that you're supplementing with, then not being able to listen to its own body cues later. So for me, if it starts to get more common for Cole that he's asking more than once a month or something like that, um, 
then we look into what's going on. Does he need earlier bedtimes? Um, you know, is he not getting enough activity during the day? Different kinds of stuff. And so, um, which leads me to the other thing that you said, Sarah, which is, you know, exercise and sunlight and all that kind of stuff is important. And I think we as parents notice that our children are more tired or, you know, uh, crash harder in the summertime and Mm -hmm. despite the fact that they don't have to get up as early for bed um early for school in the morning and one of those reasons is because they're using up that energy during the day they're getting sunlight they're swimming in the pool they're doing all that kind of stuff that they normally are sitting inside of a classroom for during the day and um so that's yeah i think that's covers the stuff that i do yeah and i Um, I mean, I do similar things. The other thing that I do with my kids is they both sleep with some kind of white noise. Um, and then we both make sure they have completely dark, you know, bedrooms, but Brianna already mentioned that she does the cool dark bedroom part. Um, but my youngest Mira, she sleeps with, uh, ocean noises. She still has like the white noise machine from her nursery still works weirdly. So, um, it's like literally just under her bed and she just sleeps with the sound of waves. Um, and then uh, Adele prefers now to sleep. She sleeps with uh, Theta Wave, uh, Theta Wave soundtrack, like an old school Stephen Halpern soundtrack that's just on uh, Apple Music. And um, she puts the entire album on repeat. It's one of the sleep albums. He's got several. And that's what she sleeps with um, all night. And that also for both of them, I think it's it's part of its relaxation, just general that, you know, there's some, some interesting science showing that those, those sounds are very relaxing for, for us. Um, but it's also a little bit of a Pavlovian response, right? They only hear those sounds when they're, you know, supposed to be relaxing and going to bed. So there's a bit about, um, sleeping that routine is very familiar. And so having a really, really strong routine is something that can really help. It's one of the reasons why it doesn't matter how fancy the hotel is that we sleep in, we'll always not sleep as well as at home. And it's because of the slightly different sounds and the slightly different smells. And maybe you didn't, you know, do your exact same bedtime routine that you do at home. And maybe the temperature is a little bit different. Like all of those different things will impact sleep quality. And then the the last thing that I wanted to um, say, because you mentioned uh, melatonin pills, is um, I definitely recommend that if you are going to take all of this science and try a melatonin supplementation to improve your sleep quality, which I think, you know, the science would definitely support that as being a worthy thing to self-experiment with, especially in the context of, you know, you've tried all of the things to improve endogenous production and still feel like maybe you could use a boost. I definitely recommend getting melatonin drops. So the smallest, you can get sublinguals, which, um, you know, are basically like chewables, but, um, the smallest, the smallest dose ones I've ever seen are one milligram tablets and you can break those up into four relatively easily. Um, but even still that's, you know, 250, micrograms that's probably that's in the range anyways for most people so you could take a one milligram tablet and break it into four but i recommend getting the drops so for most of the drops a full dropper which is 40 drops is one milligram so you can go as little as a 40th of a milligram and i do have to admit that 
Adele still, um, you know, we've, we've tried weaning her off melatonin probably eight or nine different times. And she is a, a kid who just needs a little bit of melatonin to sleep, but we've literally got her down to two drops. So it's a 20th of a milligram. It's an incredibly small dose. And that tiny little dose helps her sleep, fall asleep really well and stay asleep. And she sleeps really, really well. And weirdly, if she doesn't have it, she can't fall asleep. Um, and so I've basically, through my own research, basically chalked this up to, I know that I have uh, genes that are associated with poor sleep, <laughs> thanks to 23andMe. Um, and so I assume, my husband also has uh, periodic insomnia. So I assume that she inherited the worst sleep genes from both of her parents. And this is just a thing that helps her sleep. But I feel very pleased that we do all of these other things to support her sleep quality. And we've been able to get her dose to be something so low that it is going to be for sure within the physiological range, um, but no matter what the, the variability between people. Awesome. Well, I hope that this has been helpful, not just for Brianna, but from all people struggling with sleep disorders, I think like the majority of Americans say that they have difficulty sleeping and some way or the other. And so no matter what your source of that problem may be, I think we've covered a lot of different reasons to help you think through how to solve that problem in one way or another. So um, as Sarah mentioned, sleep is so important to our overall health. In fact, I think you wrote like a massive ginormous ebook on the topic. Um, thank you as always for being here. And just as a reminder, if I could ask you to update your review on iTunes and refer any family or friends that you think would like our show, we appreciate your referrals so much and your engagement and participation in this podcast and our communities in general is unbelievably appreciated. And we just are so glad that you're here with us. So thank you for tuning in and we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. You're expecting my call. That's what I don't I understand. It's, it's, I got distracted by a New York Times alert on my phone. Well, let me just tell you that I was totally jamming to the Skype phone ring when I was calling <laughs> you. So I'm a little bit loopy, evidently. The end of the fiscal year is getting to me, my friends. I used to be conceited, but now I'm perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.